Mark chapter 1 verse 21 to verse 28, you should hopefully have an outline that says the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Now, a group of children were asked, how powerful is God? How powerful is He? And one of them said, well, God is so powerful, He can break this school in two. And I'm sure the headmistress side over here uh, shouldn't be very happy to hear such an answer. Uh, it's not very comforting, isn't it? When a child answers that God can break the, the, the school in two, which is true, of course. One of them said, God is so powerful that he could destroy everything he made, everything he made, including ourselves, in the blink of an eye. Another said, God is so powerful, he can do anything he wants. Not simply to destroy, but he can do whatever he pleases. As I thought about those responses, I thought, these are eye-opening and sober responses. You learn a lot from children, of course. And I know that uh, since becoming a parent, you learn a lot. What are sober responses, isn't it, about who God is and his power? And what I find even more sobering is that this same God that children are talking about has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. So what we say of God is also true of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. We've been learning that through Mark. We would say Jesus is God's power, is, is God's power on display among us. To see the face of Jesus is to see the face of God. To witness the power of Jesus is to witness the power of God himself. I hope that gets you excited. It excites me when I think about that because I realize that because I am a follower of Jesus, this full power of God is at work in my life. And it is at work in your life if you know Jesus. If you have reached that position where God has done a new work, making you born again, giving you a new life, then you can say this morning, the power of God in Christ is at work in my life. Regardless of the situation you are facing. It's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, we are currently in Mark, as, a, as, we, as, we, as you know. And last time, do you remember where we were in Mark? We, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus beginning his ministry in Galilee. And we learn there that Jesus is God now coming to reign among us. God has come in the person of Christ. Jesus is the kingdom of God appearing in person with power. That's where we left off, isn't it? And we saw Jesus call his first followers there to come and follow him and be part of his amazing kingdom. That's where we left off. Oh, this morning we are picking up from there, and we'll see that Jesus now, he hasn't done any miracles yet, but he's about to start to display his amazing power for the first time. And the question I want us to ask today is this, simply this, how powerful is Jesus? And how does his power, what does his power mean for us? What does his power mean for you as you sit here this morning? What does it mean for you? Well, look with me at verse 21 of Mark chapter 1. And there are just two things I want to share with you from this passage this morning. Recently, we've been doing very well. We've just been doing two-point sermons. We have three points this evening. But today, we only have two points. And the first truth I want to share is that the power of Jesus, 
The power of Jesus has no rivals. It has no competition. It is in the category of one. Now, last time we left Jesus, as I said, calling his followers by the Sea of Galilee. Well, now they are heading off into the mission field in Capernaum. A bit like how we went off yesterday to the Broadway. They are also going out. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northern side. Uh, if you know a few things about Capernaum, it is a prosperous port town, maybe a bit like Bournemouth, where we were last week. It's a, it's a seaside town, so to speak. Uh, and it has a, a mixed population, mainly Jews, but also there are Gentiles there, you know, or foreigners. Uh, we know there's a Roman garrison there, because one of the Roman centurions helped build the synagogue that is in Capernaum. And Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus arrives, he does what he often likes to do. He makes a visit to the local synagogue. And he goes there on a Saturday. He's going there for fellowship and worship. Let's read on verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. What is a synagogue? Well, the synagogue is a local assembly uh, hall, like our chapel here. Uh, It is where Jewish people at this time uh, gather to worship. And here, the Old Testament scriptures explain to them, just like we are sitting here. And the only official in charge of a synagogue is the ruler of the synagogue. We need to understand this because the ruler of the synagogue is not the pastor. Uh, He's just a caretaker and perhaps a bit of a librarian. He does not teach the Bible. A bit like some churches. But literally, he doesn't do anything. Okay? So what happens is that on Saturdays like this, teaching is down to whoever feels up to it. Okay? That's how it works in the synagogue. And today, Jesus is present. Okay? This explains why Jesus is able to stand up and share the gospel. Because no one is there actually appointed to teach. It's whoever who just feels up to it, to the task. So he comes in, uh, he's present, and we imagine perhaps a leader of the synagogue has invited Jesus in, or Jesus has offered himself to teach. He steps up to the plate, and he opens and starts speaking, like, like, like I'm doing now. And everyone is blown away by the words. Let's read on verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Imagine yourself being there as Jesus is teaching. I would imagine that everybody's mouth is open like, wow, wow. I would imagine people are turning to one another and saying, where did this guy come from? I mean... Wow, we have never had anything like that. And of course, if the young people are there, they are probably doing what a few young people were doing yesterday in the Broadway. They, they probably say, we've got to get this up on Facebook. We, we've got to tweet about this. We're going to have a, an Instagram post taken with Christ. And uh, they're excited about what they're hearing. And what they say here is that they summarize it like this. Do you look at that? Look at verse, verse, verse 22. For he taught them as one who had authority. When they think of Jesus, they think of only one word. This man has authority. 
Now, the original word for authority here, uh, it converts something that we may not think about when you think about authority figures at school or in the church or, or, or in society in general. Here it's conveying supernatural power. They're saying Jesus has supernatural power compared to their respected experts. The, the scribes here are the teachers of the Lord. They are the PhDs in theology, so to speak. They have studied the book of the law, and they're able to speak on these matters with authority. They speak as power players in moral matters. And people look at Jesus and say, he's nothing like these guys. He's far better than these guys. He's in the category of one. Our scribes, our experts, they derive their power from the books of read, the traditions of their forefathers. But Jesus' words come from the authority within himself. When Jesus speaks, he's speaking as a creator, speaking to the creature. He already knows what is in your heart. And when he speaks words, they have power. They can speak right deep to your heart. They can compel you to act. Because Jesus' words have authority as the creator God. Now, every society has its powerful figures, doesn't it? We have people in our lives who shape how we live. In this society we live in, in the UK. In the days of Jesus, it is the scribes, right? In our days, we look to politicians who make our laws. They have power. They speak with authority on these issues. We have business leaders who tell us what to buy. They influence our business decisions. We have academics who have a lot of views about things in life, and they like to tell us what is true and what is not. We have academics and we have journalists and celebrities who believe they have the power to define what is right and wrong in our society. What the BBC seems to agree on seems to be the official position of society. These are all power players. These people hold power over us not because there are some secret society that have decided to do this, they hold power over us because all of us realize life is complicated. And we have realized that we need help. We need people in our lives, powerful people, to hold our hands through life, to explain Brexit, to tell us who to vote for, to define the fashion, the clothes we wear. We give them this power, actually, as it turns out. Because we realize we need powerful people in our lives to hold our hands through life. And of course, we're not just looking to these people for power. We are also, many of us, looking for power within ourselves. That's why we look for power, isn't it? Uh, there's a lot of craze at the moment about mindfulness. It's all about reaching deep your soul. Get more yoga on, tai chi, so you have power from within. We're looking to tap inside for power. Many of us live by the words of Mariah Carey's hit song from the 90s, which says there is a hero if you look inside your heart. You don't have to be afraid of what you are. Interesting. There is an answer, Mariah says, if you reach into your soul. My friends, Mariah says power is within your heart. But think about that for a minute. Looking inside your heart for power, yourself, is an illusion. As a person, you're just one of seven billion people on this small planet in a very large cosmos. Just one. 
of 7 billion. In relation to the universe, your lifespan is a mere blink. Your life faces many threats from accidents, disease, violence. Accident, a six-year-old I read this morning died in market. It's just merely sits. Accidents are everywhere, friends. We face many accidents. All of that could shorten your already short life in this year, in the, on this planet. Your life is already short, and you face these threats. You're looking for power within. Think carefully, friend. You don't even generate the air you breathe. You don't create the ground you walk on. You will die someday, and soon, friends, just like all of us, you will be forgotten. That's how powerless we are. You, like everyone else, like me, we're all powerless, really. So relying on any power from yourself or other people will never fulfill your hopes and dreams. No. You need power that meets all your needs. All of us here need a power that is sufficient in every sphere of life. A power that is sufficient for today, a power that is sufficient for tomorrow. And you need power from God alone. Only He is sufficient. And as we go through Mark and as we read this passage, Mark is telling us the good news of Jesus is that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. The power of Jesus has come. This power is available. Power without competition. Power that can truly transform our lives. But it is more than that. The power that Jesus possesses is something that we can depend on. Now, we watched Infinity Wars, didn't we? We saw Thanos collect the six infinity stones. And what did he use that power for? To wipe out half of the universe. But the power of Jesus is nothing like that. The power of Jesus is power that isn't to wipe out things. The power of Jesus, he uses it for our good. It is power that Christ possesses to defeat evil for us. Not just for himself, but for our good. And that is the second lesson we learn here. The power of Jesus delivers us from evil. So, not only is the power of Jesus without competition, it is the power that delivers us from evil. Let's rejoin Jesus in the synagogue. We see that Jesus is in full flow, isn't he? He's, he's speaking. And then suddenly, a man stands up. Uh, a man stands up and he starts shouting at Jesus. Look at verse 23 to verse 24. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, I have never seen a preacher heckled. Thankfully, no one has heckled me yet. <laughs> I thank God for that. And I've never seen another preacher being heckled, actually. I've never seen that before. I've seen, perhaps, when somebody's sharing the gospel outside, somebody says something rude, and I saw one or two people do that yesterday. But I've never seen them really heckled in the way uh, we, we tend to associate people sort of shouting down a person. But we have seen it actually on TV with politicians, haven't we? We've seen a politician giving a press conference, then suddenly he or she gets interrupted, 
and something, you know, by someone, right? We've seen that. You, some of you may remember George Bush uh, flying into Baghdad, and all of a sudden, a man, in, a man in the audience grabbed the shoe, took off his shoe, and launched it at George W. Bush. He chucked the shoe at him. Well, that was quite bad, and the Secret Services quickly sort of <laughs> ruffled up the man and removed him oh, quickly. Or last year, you may think of Theresa May, isn't it? Remember that incident where perhaps maybe a year before that, but where Theresa May was, was giving that speech. I think it was last year, actually. She was giving the speech at a Conservative Party press conference, and a man went up and handed her a P45 <laughs> to her to tell her that your time is up. Actually, she said, this is from Boris Johnson. I handed her that. So that was so embarrassing for Mrs. May. It was sad, really, to see that. People do that sometimes, isn't it? Most people are, are, are polite enough just to disagree with you quietly without heckling you, but sometimes people do those things. Well, this man shouting at Jesus is not an ordinary man. We need to get that. He's not an ordinary man. This man who's shouting, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We are told that he has an evil or unclean spirit or a demon living inside of him. And immediately we should pause and Think about that. What is a demon or an unclean spirit? Now, I know there are thousands and tons of books written on this, but to be honest, and this is true, set the scriptures for yourself, the Bible does not tell us what a demon is. There's no definition in the scriptures. It describes the demonic activity, but it doesn't tell you what actually a demon is. And as you read books, you find that actually, actually three views which have been suggested about the origins of demons. The first view that theologians have put forward is that demons are some unknown creatures that became evil. Creatures that we don't know anything about but somehow became evil. That's view number one. The second view that has been put forward is that demons are a product of angels who cohabited with women in Genesis 6. And the, the, the view says, you know, that the offspring of those somehow became demons. The third view, which most of you are familiar with, is that demons are actually themselves fallen angels who inhabit people. Personally, I lean towards the third view of this. But in a qualified way, I think demons are fallen angels who fell with Satan from heaven. But these are not angels currently held in chains in Jude 2 or 2 Peter, which talks about some angels that fell and were held in chains. We will explore this issue in more depth at our Bible study on Thursday. That is my pitch for this morning. The, the main point I am trying to make here is that demons are real, they are dangerous, and they are under Satan's control. And up to now, this demon here, it seems, has been free to do what he likes. But Jesus has now come, and the demon is not only annoyed at Jesus, it is terrified of him. Let's read on verse 24. And he, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
I wonder when you read that you are a bit puzzled by the word us. What does it mean, have you come to destroy us? The us there probably refers to the demon and the man, possibly, or and the rest of the demonic forces that are now in code red, we might say. Jesus is in town and all the demonic forces now know their time is up. The game is over. The king has come and they are terrified that Jesus has come now to destroy them forever. But we should pause there. That's an important point, isn't it? We should know that the demon here has a correct understanding of who Jesus is. Not in what he says. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. The demon knows Jesus is God the Son. The anointed Messiah. The destroyer of evil, so to speak. And he is very afraid at this thought of Jesus. And yet notice something interesting. This knowledge of Jesus does not do the demon any good. He has not surrendered to Jesus. He is not pleading to Jesus for forgiveness. No, the demon still believes in his own power. And he believes his power will get him through life. And he's in Capernaum doing his deeds of evil. The demon confesses the power of Jesus, but his heart, his heart is still rebellious. And sadly, sadly, as I thought about this, some of you are in the same condition as this demon. You know Jesus is God, don't you? You can say Jesus is the Holy One of God. But your heart is not saying, Jesus is my Holy One of God. You say you are a follower of Jesus, but your heart has not really bowed the knees. You must ask yourself, has there been a true work of grace in your life? Do you see evidence of a new heart? Do you see evidence of a heart that can say, I know who you are, Jesus. You are my Holy One of God. Friends, becoming a Christian is the movement of the entire center of your being. It is a complete and radical surrender to God. A change of direction. The Christian life is full of pronouns. My God, my Lord, my Savior. And that only happens if you truly surrender your heart to Jesus. And he gives you a new heart based on his work on the cross. A brand new heart that can say, Jesus is mine. This is what we mean by being born again, isn't it? God breathes new life into dead souls and gives them a new heart that loves and serves Jesus. My brothers and sisters, please, please, I beg of you, get this point. This truth is what the demons cannot claim to have for all their knowledge. They know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know him personally. And if you are not in that position of knowing Jesus personally, you haven't fully surrendered to Jesus you are in the same condition as these demons here. It is why we are going out to the open air to evangelize. 
It is why we are standing on this pulpit every day. It is why, as we go through Mark, I'm impressing on you, my brothers and sisters, on the seriousness of sin. It is why I'm pointing you to the cross, because it is serious, isn't it? To be in the same category as this demon here. To fear destruction at the coming of Christ. Think about your conditions, friends. Think about that. But don't remain like that. Come before Jesus now. Do what this demon can do. Surrender your life genuinely to him. Let him make you truly born of God. And you need to do that, as I said, because you are facing the same destruction this demon is terrified of. Of. If you don't do that, Jesus will destroy you in hell forever. Jesus has no time for those who refuse to bow their hearts to him, regardless of who they are. And we see that here, that as it, when the demon claims that he knows Jesus, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What does Jesus do? Jesus says, shut up, mantle up, come out of him. Look at verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit, in verse 26, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. We see here that the kingdom of God has gone head to head with the forces of evil. And already, already in Mark, it has been declared a no contest. This is better than Anthony Joshua. I mean, Jesus has just knocked them out. And they are gone. The Jewish historian Josephus uh, tells of an exorcism he saw being performed by the traveling Jewish exorcist. Eliezer, at around the same time of Jesus. What Eliezer does is this. He places a ring of, uh, of secret herbs around someone's nose, okay, the nose of the demonized person. And the herbs, of course, force a sneeze. Uh, and the demon allegedly escapes through this sneeze. And as the demon is leaving, what Eliezer does is he commands the demon in the name of King Solomon, not to return. It's the sort of stuff you see on TV, isn't it? When we compare Eliezer's exorcism and some of the exorcism we see today, we see that with Jesus there's no comparison. It is worlds apart. Jesus simply issues a direct command and the demons have no choice but to obey. And this is why people are amazed. And this is why they're telling everyone. Let's read on, verse 27 to 28. How do they react, the people? And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. Just notice there the plural, by the way. The people say, unclean spirits. They recognize there are more demons, perhaps, at stake here than just this demon which has entered the church, we might say, in the synagogue on that Saturday morning. You see, the demon probably wanted to scare people away. But people have seen the power of Jesus to deliver us from evil. And they're excited about it. And they go on to tell others about it, isn't it? Look at verse 28. And at once... 
his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus has delivered this man from the power of Satan. And most importantly, what Jesus does here, friends, in this synagogue is a picture of what Jesus will do later when he goes up to the cross, when he is nailed to the cross. Because you see, on the cross, Jesus takes on our sins. And as he takes on our sins, he robs Satan of any power that he had over us. Because Jesus takes on our sin and offers his sacrifice to God for us, what then happens is that by his power, his, his death and resurrection, as he's resurrected, he's transferring all of us from the domain of darkness that Satan held us in into the kingdom of God. Paul makes this point in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, a verse which you should read often. It says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we, that is who are in Christ, have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In fact, if you read the book of Colossians, Paul later on says that on the cross, Jesus defeated, routed the powers of darkness, and he made a public spectacle of them. You can find that in Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15. Jesus has defeated the powers of darkness for us. Now, in one of my favorite movies, uh, Safe House, uh, Denzel Washington plays the CIA agent Tobin Frost. And if you've seen the movie, Tobin Frost, he cannot escape, you know, uh, he cannot be kept safe despite, it's set in South Africa, so it cannot, it cannot be kept safe despite how many safe houses he goes on. I mean, the movie says that the CIA has a number of safe houses. So if something happens to their agent, he can run to, to this safe house and be kept safe. But in the movie, Denzel is being chased everywhere. There are enemies within the CIA. Even, even when he goes to the safe house, I mean, it's being shot up, everything there, you know, he's not safe. And actually what happens in the end, of course, that Denzel, uh, this man, Tobin Frost, the, the character he plays, Tobin Frost, has to fight his way to freedom. And if you've seen that movie, you know that the message of the film, you should always ask that when you watch a film, the message of the film is that we must depend on our own power to stay safe. They're saying not even the CIA can keep you safe. No one can. Just depend on your power. Be like Tobin Frost. Well, I want to say to you, on the authority of God's written word, that if you are trusting in Jesus today, you have no Tobin Frost problems. You are free from the power of Satan forever. God alone can keep you safe, and he keeps you safe in Jesus. The power of the devil has been broken over your life. And Jesus, listen to this, is powerful enough to keep you. Friends, you don't have to keep looking over your shoulder. You don't have to dig in your heart for some energy reserve to keep going. You don't even have to go to any pastor to pray for you. If you are in Christ, Christ has delivered you. Listen, the only deliverance ministry you need is a delivery that Christ has accomplished on the cross. He has delivered you and he has covered you by his precious 
blood. In Jesus, we have what I call, we have a complete savior. A loving and powerful king who has already defeated evil for you. And is using his power to keep you. Now, now, as I look out this morning, I recognize that some of you find perhaps this hard to believe. Yes, you believe in Christ. But yet, in some areas of your life, things have become actually harder since you made a profession of faith. For some of you truly believe in Christ. And the idea of Jesus being powerful doesn't hit you as much as it should. Because you're looking at your life and you're thinking... I know, I know, Jesus is there, but things are so hard. I don't feel so safe and secure in Christ right now. The reason for that, of course, is that the devil hates you. The devil hates you now than he's ever hated you. If you have truly surrendered to Christ, he hates you more now than before you surrendered to Christ. The devil hates you for turning to Christ. And the devil is working even harder now to destroy everything you hold dear. Your peace, your security, your family, your work. He's at work destroying all those things. He's trying to. Now the devil knows that he cannot take away your salvation. All the fish that Jesus catches, he keeps. He's spiritually, we might say, <laughs> greedy like that, in, in a right way. He, he's, he's kept the fish, he catches the fish, he keeps it. It is his own. His precious children. The devil knows that he can never take away you away from Christ. But he wants you damaged. He wants you damaged as much as possible. And he's dangling temptations every day in front of you. He's working hard to discourage you through people you know. Some of them may be even so-called Christians or really Christians. He wants you cut off from the life of this church because the devil knows if he can get you one-on-one, then he can get you discouraged and he can render you impotent, so to speak. And sometimes we foolishly fall into the trap of Satan. We give in to him. We give in in some sin. We, we, we stop attending church as we should. We no longer prioritize prayer with God's people or things like that. And when we do that, you know what the devil does? He turns around and starts accusing us. He says to you, he says this, he says to me, he does, he says, look, you, you say you're a Christian. He may say that to you, you say you're a Christian, but look how he just treated your wife. He's encouraged you to do that, but he's now turning around and saying, look how you treated your wife. You lied to your mom about this, didn't you? He's piling on guilt. He says, you're a Christian, but you have not even read your Bible this past week. What sort of Christian is that, huh? Look how you're just falling into a ditch here. Tell him. The devil encourages us. He's slandering God to us. And then he's slandering us the other way around. Beloved, I want to encourage you. If there has been real change in your heart, this is not for everyone, but if the work of grace has taken place in your life, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let this passage encourage you today. Jesus has already defeated evil for you on the cross forever. Write that down. Remember it. Regardless of how much mess you make. No matter how much sin you commit. 
Christ has set you free in him. Yes, your sin offends God. And you must repent of it now. But as you do that, remember that it is your your repentance that is having you acceptable before God. It is the blood of Christ that is doing it. And Jesus has already made you a victor over evil by his precious blood. So let your repentance be enveloped with thanksgiving for Christ, your victor on the cross. And do not stop there, friends. Oh, how can us who have been delivered from sin walk in it? So don't stop there. Make the Bible your daily habit. Feed on its truths so that you may be kept away from walking into sin. How can a young man stay pure? I have hid the word of God in my heart so that I may not sin against you, says the psalmist. So study the word. Love it. Read it. Look, if you are not reading the Bible, you always live by your feelings rather than the truth of God's word. And the result is that you always doubt the work of Jesus for you. And the more you doubt, the more lies the devil plants. And the more you lose confidence in who you really are in Christ. But also let us prioritize being in fellowship, in true fellowship with one another. As I said before, the devil's only hope for a Christian, listen to this, the devil's only hope for you is to get you one-on-one. This is really what I want you to understand this morning. He wants you away from others. You see, the goal of Satan is not so much to stop you from coming to this chapel on Sunday mornings. That's not what I mean. We've seen the demon walk into the chapel. Ah, the devil is a regular attendee at, I'm sure, even some of our services. If he can walk into a synagogue through this demon, I'm sure he's attending many churches even as we speak. That's what he's up to, going there to cause disruption. So the devil is not interested really in stopping you coming to church on Sundays. He's not. The goal of the devil is to have you part of this church, but listen to this, in name only. In name only. He wants you to be part of this church without being truly transformed in Christ, without really being church. Being in close community with other believers. Without having anyone in the church you can really call on when you're struggling. Without having a sister at the other end of the phone, you can just pick up. I'm in a mess. Kids are out of hands. Can you come and collect them for me? Because I need just time with my husband to pray through things. That's the devil's strategy to stop us being a true church like that. He wants us gossiping with one another. He wants you to hate when the word of God is preached here and to shut your ears from it. To be in church but not in church. So let us make it clear to the devil once and for all that we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The people sat next to us are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we will seek to open our hearts and yes, our possessions to them. What we have is theirs. That's the church we want. That's the church Christ died for. A church that can say, what I have is my sister's. My time is Alex's time. His pain is my pain. The joy of Brother Fred is my joy in Christ. Let us be a church like that.
that wants to grow together in Christ. And together we seek to live out the power of Jesus, who has triumphed over the domain of darkness. Amen.